stand with me now as, as we would uh, hear God's Word read? God's Word this morning comes to us, Malachi chapter 1. And again, I'll read from verses 16 through 14. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you, O priest, who despise my name? But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals and sacrifice, is that not an evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or offer or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to the setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered in my name, and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or as lame or sick and this you bring as an offering? Shall I accept these from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. Amen. So ends the reading of God's holy word. Please be seated. The title of this sermon is God Challenges Idolatry. God Challenges Idolatry. Now, that's something of a no-brainer, isn't it? We often recite the, the second commandment where God says in the prohibition of making images, you shall not worship them or serve them, for I, Yahweh, your God, am a jealous God. In fact, in, in Exodus 34, verse 14, God even goes so far as to say, you shall not worship any other God, for Yahweh, whose name is jealous, is a jealous God. God's very name is jealous. And he will not give his glory to any other, for he is jealous for his holy name and his great reputation. We saw that in this passage. How many times it says, my name will be feared among the nations. I will be honored among the nations. Idols are stupid things. They're ignorant and they're weak. And so in Isaiah chapter 40, God laughs at those people who actually bow down <laughs> 
to the idols they have made with their own hands, as if these objects that they have made can help them in any way. God declares himself, to whom will you liken me that I would be his equal? Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created those stars, the one who leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name. Men make their idols and they worship them. God makes the stars. He makes all things. And he is to be honored and loved and worshiped alone. Well, the year was 1543. John Calvin was asked to give a defense of the Protestant uh, Reformation. And so he wrote a little treatise called On the Necessity of Reforming the Church. Again, he wrote this as a defense for the Protestant Reformation. And he sought to tell the emperor, uh, Charles V, why he and others followed Martin Luther in seeking to reform the church. And in that treatise, he mentioned that Christ came to earth for the sole purpose of leading us out of idolatry to become true worshipers of God. That's the whole purpose of your salvation, beloved. That you would be led out of your idolatry, that you'd be led out of your darkness, and that you'd be led to be a true worshiper of God, a worshiper in spirit and truth. The issue of idolatry is nothing more than human wisdom replacing divine revelation. Idolatry creeps into our hearts with such a latent force because, you see, it disguises itself by a piety that has the appearance of wisdom and devotion. So we need to be careful about idolatry. Well, in our text, again, God points out uh, the self-righteous attitudes of the Levites and how that self-righteous attitude actually leads to a form of idolatry. Now, it's true. Those people were not bowing down to images or to any false god of any kind. Their fathers, of course, had been unfaithful to God. And they paid the penalty for it, right? They bowed down to idols. They worshiped foreign gods. They didn't take pleasure in God's holy Sabbath. They, they didn't give the land its Sabbath rest every seven years as they were called to do. And so they were exiled for 70 years. They were sent to Babylon where they served the king of Babylon. They had shown a, a blatant disregard, a contempt for the holy things of God. And so God punished them for it. But in their exile, they learned to take God more seriously. And so they purged all the images from among them, from their land. They, they became strict Sabbatarians. They developed elaborate systems and regulations to ensure that, in fact, they were well within the limits of the Mosaic law. They could say, our fathers were idolatrous, but we are not. Our fathers were unfaithful to God, but we are faithful. We honor his name. We, we offer praise to him and him alone. Nevertheless, in our text this morning, God is showing them that idolatry is far more complex. It's far more subtle than what we often imagine. 
And again, the, the issue is you can be a worshiper of God. You can do all the right things that God's word has commanded you to do, but idolatry and forms of false worship are embedded deep in our fallen and corrupted hearts. And so John Calvin's most famous statement, uh, our hearts are little idol factories, is constantly being rediscovered day by day as being a true axiom. And, and so what God is doing here, he's revealing that, that hidden sin of the heart of idolatry. And, and God is accusing these people of despising his name and defiling his altar through their, their idol, idolatry. Now again, you, you see their, their problem is that they believed that their spiritual work and their offering to the Lord was acceptable because they did it in his name. Even if their hearts were in it, they were doing all the right things. They were doing it to God's holy name. And they were contented in what they did and, and how they did it. And so when God says, you have uh, defiled me, that you have despised my holy name, they balked at that critique. And they said, how have we despised your name? Now, what I'm hoping that you're seeing is that how self-righteousness subtly, uh, subtly creates this feeling of contentment. Self-righteousness gives a, a security to us in our works so that whenever we're challenged, whenever we're rebuked, whenever we're admonished, we're smug in the way we, we approach these things. Well, of course... You read the Old Testament, all the prophets of the Old Testament, I think, had something to say about the sin of idolatry. All the prophets of the Old Testament, from Moses on down, they rebuked the people as they went from trusting and worshiping God alone as their sovereign to worshiping and turning to false gods. And so, again, even from their earliest, earliest days of their history, much of their religious activity in the name of Yahweh was mixed, in fact, with idolatry. You can, you can, we have so many instances that, so I'll just give you a couple. First, for example, is in Exodus chapter 32. In Exodus 32, uh, Moses ascends to Mount Sinai. Remember, Mount Sinai is this frightening place. Strong thunders and lightnings, uh, uh, storm clouds hung over that mountain. Uh, that mountain shook. It, it, uh, smoke was, was covering that mountain. And Moses was up there for quite a long time receiving the revelation from God. And the people down in the valley began to wonder if perhaps Moses had died up there. And so they began to think. We need a physical representation of God to lead us and to comfort us. Aaron, you're the priest. You make us a thing. And so Aaron capitulated. And he made for them, you'll recall, he made for them that golden calf. But do you remember as he made that calf and as he gave it to the people, remember what he said? He said, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. 
Then he said, tomorrow shall be a feast to Yahweh. Now, did you hear what Aaron said there? What he did was to equate that golden calf with God himself. You see, it wasn't that they were worshiping another god, but they were worshiping the true God on their own terms. They were worshiping the true God through images, an image that God had forbidden. But they were worshiping them on their own terms. And, of course, God's anger burned against that, and he would have utterly destroyed them if it had not been that Moses interceded for them. Now, God forgave them, but not without smiting them. Likewise, in, 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 um, as, God, as God gave Moses the, the formulas for making the, the tabernacle and all the furniture and all the stuff that's to go on and what kind of sacrifices were to be given, God had given the Levites a special formula for incense. The priests were to offer God a special kind of incense that God himself gave them. In fact, in Exodus chapter 30, verse 9, he says, You shall not offer any strange or any unauthorized incense on this altar. Only the incense that I gave you, that's what you're to use. But then you go to Leviticus chapter 10, and you can read about how Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, offered up God their own incense. They they were thinking, no doubt, incense is incense. What difference does it make? It's not what we offer that's important. It's that we offer that's important. Well, God had a different opinion of that. And he acted in response to their profanity by sending a fire down from heaven to immediately consume them. And it was such a a powerful thing and the people were standing there with gobsmacked and awed. But before they could even mourn the loss of Nadab and Abihu, Moses spoke out, said, this is what the Lord spoke, saying, by those who come near me, I will be treated as holy. And before all the people, I will be honored. God takes his worship seriously, folks. But again, it's not that they weren't worshiping God. They were worshiping God, but they gave him what they wanted to give, not what he had commanded them. Well, one more instance of this. An instance of where idolatry wraps itself in good, pious, religious garb and language. 1 Samuel chapter 15, God had commanded King Saul to slay all the Amalekites, all their animals, man, woman, child, every animal, leave nothing alive. That command was to fulfill the promise of of, uh, Exodus chapter 17, verse 14, where God said, utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Why? Because the Amalekites mercilessly attacked Israel at Rephidim. Now the thing is, Samuel took his armies and he slew most of the Amalekites. 
But 1 Samuel 15 says that he spared King Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good. So he spared them. Now, the prophet Samuel came, and, and as he approached, Saul proudly announced, all that the Lord had commanded me to do, I have done. And so Samuel says, oh, really? Then what is the lowing of the cattle in my ears or the bleeding of the sheep? And Saul said, well, I intended to take those animals that you're hearing. I'm intending to take all those animals and sacrifice them to the Lord. And Samuel says, well, Samuel, or Saul, you have not really obeyed the voice of God. God says kill everything, and here you are with these. And Samuel rebuked him. And Saul backtracked. He said, well, I obeyed you. I utterly destroyed the Amalekites. Oh, only the people. They took the sheep. They wanted to sacrifice these things to God. Now, what Saul was saying is that these animals are going to be slain just as God commanded. Only it's going to be done in our time frame. It's not to be slain on the battlefield. We'll sacrifice them. That sounds so pious, doesn't it? It sounds so good. We're reserving these animals for sacrifice, not for our use. But you see, the problem was Saul was a rebel. And he wanted, to say, he wanted to worship God on his terms. And so God said, the kingdom is rent from you this day. And God said, sacrifice. Ah, obedience is better than sacrifice. Now we come back to Malachi. And these people were doing the same thing all over again. They were still offering up sacrifices to the true and living God. They were sacrificing to false gods, to false idols, any image. They were doing this spiritual work in God's very name. And so again, when, when they were told that they were dishonoring God, they were surprised. It didn't make any sense to them. You see, their self-righteousness made them complacent in their spiritual service. They were completely unaware that their offering to God was actually sinful and displeasing to him. They couldn't see their offense. And so God had to very plainly tell them, pointed it out, when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you present the lame and the sick, is it not evil? Evil? Now let me ask you, do you understand the complaint that God had? Again, idolatry comes in many forms and fashions. Idolatry is often a very subtle thing in our hearts. I, I dare say that if I go into any of your houses, you're not going to have little statues of, of foreign gods sitting on your, your mantelpiece. That doesn't mean that you're not an idolater. You see, at its core, idolatry is simply a trust in self. It's a reliance that I, myself, have enough insight and wisdom to know what is best for me. 
Idolatry rests from a belief that God is pleased with me. He's pleased with my worship because I do the things that he tells me to do, even if I do them out of only duty and obligation instead of love and, and devotion. Idolatry puts its activities under the banner of religious liberty. Idolatry can even justify itself by insisting that it is observing the regulative principle of worship. It all sounds good. It all looks pious enough. But the heart is lifted up in selfish pride. There's a restraint vying for the primacy over my own time, the use of my energy, my money, my gifts, my devotion. It's all about me, what I choose to do, and how I choose to do it, and when and where I choose to do it. You see, it's falling for Satan's old lie. Remember at, at the Garden of Eden, uh, Satan said to Eve, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You don't need God to tell you how and when and where to worship. You get to choose. You get to determine all this. Let no man, no prophet, no priest, no pastor, no elder, no mature Christian, let no one tell you when and how and where you should worship. You should choose that for yourself. And the idea is that as long as I worship the true God, I'm free to do it in whatever manner I choose. I get to do it how often. And, 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 and no one has a right to question my integrity. No one has a right to criticize me. And so again, the people of Malachi's day say, how have we despised your name? How have we defiled you? And the people today still ask those same questions. They don't like to be challenged. Like I mentioned, idolatry comes in subtle forms. And here again, God is pointing out that not only were they worshiping God according to their own wisdom and desire, they were minimalistic in it. Look at verse 8. God accused them of presenting the blind and the lame and the sick animals for sacrifice. In verse 11, he accuses them of offering impure grain offerings, then in verse 14, he points out that they are swindling him by offering blemished animals. They vowed, I have this ram, I have this cow, it's a, it's a good thing. But rather than giving God that, they give the lame, the sick, the maimed. It's sacrifice. They're sacrificing but it's the least they could give. It's not the best. It's not the first fruit. It's not the healthy. It's not the costly things. It's just the minimum thing they can give and it still be called sacrifice. And then look at verse 13. Because even as they gave these, these rotten sacrifices, God hears them utter saying, He nay, Behold, ah, what weariness. You can hear them bored with this whole thing. I am bored. This is weariness to me. 
It's an unbearable burden. Wearied with the whole affair. And God says they sniffed at it with contempt. <laughs> oh yeah, they gave their sacrifices, friends. They gave their sacrifices, but it had no significance. It had no meaning to them. They went through the motions without emotion. Now, of course, the Levitical law concerning sacrifices only allowed unblemished, healthy animals. There was to be no crippled animal, no diseased animal, no blind animal. These were not allowed by God's law. But because these people were lackadaisical in their devotion and their love to God, they accepted these unacceptable things as, as acceptable offerings to God. And the worst of it is, as God points out here, they would never have thought of giving these things to a king or to someone else. Oh, but we can give it to God. You know, sometimes we ourselves say, oh, it's not the gift, it's the thought that counts. But here there's no thought at all about what they're doing. I want you to understand with God, it is both the gift and the thought that counts. Imagine, Christmas time is coming up. Imagine giving a family member or a close friend a, a Christmas present that, that you took some time to think about. You went and, you, and you, you bought the thing, and it's a nice present. You took the time to wrap it up, and then you give it to them. And they take that present, and they rush back to the back room, and they return with a crumpled up, used brown paper bag with a dollar bill scuffed inside it. And they hand that to you saying, Merry Christmas. There was absolutely no thought involved with that, was there? In fact, it's an afterthought. Wouldn't you be offended by that? Would it be better to receive nothing at all from them rather than to be offered such a thoughtless, careless, sloppy, worthless thing that under no other circumstance would ever be called a gift? Let me challenge us today. We might, be prepared, we might prepare ourselves for days to go to a nice dinner party. Let's say that the mayor of your city or the governor invites you to a dinner gala. And you, what are you, are you going to spend uh, two minutes preparing? No, you're going to spend some time getting your hair done, getting your nails filed, whatever you do, maybe buying a new uh, suit or a new dress, oh, definitely for women, new shoes. You're going to prepare yourself to hobnob with important people. Well, maybe you're not going to be invited to such a party. But we all have school or work to go to. And don't you make sure that you're always there on time? An old friend comes to town. Will you not carve out some time in your busy schedule to have lunch or dinner with them? And won't you be happy to pick up the tab when a beloved family member takes you to an expensive restaurant? Yet, when it comes to God, 
Many of us don't take the same care at all. Let me ask you, do you care? Do you, do you prepare yourself for worship? Or do you casually wake up on a Sunday morning and, and get to church 10, 15, 20, 30 minutes late every Sunday? I'm just, eh, you know, I'm, I'm there. At least I'm there. And do you feel that, that morning worship is enough, but returning to a second service or to, to, to come to a, a prayer or any other thing of the church, well, that's just too much of my time. You know, that's, that's a big commitment. Let me ask you, do you feel yourself too busy to read the Bible and to pray during the week on your own or with your family? Do you ever dream of canceling a, a brunch with an old friend or a family member that you haven't seen for a while? But if you're a little tired on Sunday morning, you find it acceptable to stay in bed. I'm not going to go to church today. I'm too tired. You might consider yourself a good Christian because you go through all the motions of worship, but you give it minimalistically. You give him the least amount of your time, the least amount of your energy or your thoughts or your money. You never give it. We have a bills. I will, I will give to God my leftover. After I paid all my bills, my mortgages, all my things, and I have time to go to a movie or whatever, then I'll give God. Why not put his tithe on the top of your list? And if you don't have enough money to buy food for a few days, you can fast. Why not that? Oh, that's unacceptable. That's unthinkable, unimaginable. Why would I do that? You see how this form of idolatry comes? It reveals the condition and the devotion of our hearts, my friends. When the heart, though, is full of love, it doesn't want to give the bare bones minimum, does it? It doesn't want to give thoughtless, meaningless gifts to the beloved. In fact, you know, the great thing about love is that there's more of a desire to please them than to be pleased. You who are in love, haven't haven't you felt that your greatest pleasure is seeing your your beloved blessed and pleased? When we are in love, when we're in love, we don't count time by minutes. Minutes. When we're in love, we don't consider the cost in terms of dollars. Love's only regret that it doesn't have more to give. These people, they gave the sick and the maimed and the blind and the impure because their love for God, you see, had grown cold. Remember how they asked her earlier, how have you loved us? They had grown content in their own self-righteousness. And so their love for God was replaced by a love of self-love. What's the cure? Because there is a cure. The cure for that is to see God's love in you. In the face of your sin, to see God's love. One of my favorite stories in the Bible, maybe because I identify with this woman, is of a time when Jesus was invited to a big dinner party. And while they were sitting there eating and drinking, a prostitute came. 
and began crying and washing his feet with her tears, drying it with her hair, and then she anointed those precious holy feet with perfume. While the host, a Pharisee, sneered in contempt, and he said, If this man was a prophet, he would know what kind of woman that is. You remember what Jesus said? Simon, I entered your house, and you didn't even offer water to wash my feet. But she cleansed them with her tears. You gave me no kiss at all but she has not ceased kissing my feet. You didn't anoint my head with oil, but she has poured perfume over my feet. Oh, her sins are many, but they're all forgiven. And then Jesus says something I think is truly the most powerful, profound thing. He who is forgiven little Loves little. It can be said that he who has been forgiven much loves much too. And sometimes, my friends, we get so wrapped up in ourselves, in our own world, and we forget how big our sin is. And we forget how great a debt we owe God. We don't see God in all his holiness. We don't see how offensive that little white lie, that little taking uh, that two cents from the candy store, we don't see that as being a big thing. We get so wrapped up in ourselves. And so our love for him grows cold. Our duties towards him becomes burdensome. Our offerings become whatever we have left over. That's why Paul said, may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. My friends, it's at the cross where I see my sin as God sees it. It's at the cross that I see what my sin deserves. It's at the cross where I see God, what God has done to cleanse me of my sin and to set me free from death. Let me just say this. The cross is the great fertilizer of love. If your love is old and worn out, if your love is brown and dry, I invite you now, come to the cross and watch how that love will spring back to life. Again, maybe you just haven't seen how foul and disgusting and revolting your sin is. Maybe you just haven't seen how holy and righteous God is. But the cross is the place that our depravity and God's love is shown. Let me just, let me point this out. You know, sometimes we we read these things, but we don't think about them. The night that Jesus was betrayed, he, he, he was praying to the Father. And you remember he said, Father, if it is possible, let this cup passed me by. But that cup didn't pass him by. It was not possible. That's how great sin was. Jesus had to die if you're ever to be saved from your sin. That's the depths Christ was willing to go to save you. Do you see this? When you see his love displayed there, what more can you say? 
But though the whole realm of nature were mine, that were a gift far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Henry, the farmer, came into the kitchen one morning, all excited. Martha, Martha, jumping up and down. Old Bess gave birth to twin calves this morning. It's amazing. Those calves are so beautiful. Come out and look at them. And Martha said, oh, Henry, that is good news. One calf, two calves. God is so good to us. Yes, he said, God is good, and I'm going to return my thanks to him. One of those calves I devote to God. I dedicate it to him. It is his calf. The others will be ours. Great. A few weeks later, Henry came into the kitchen one one morning, forlorn, downcast. Oh, Martha, Martha. I woke up this morning, went out to the barn, and found one of the calves dead. Oh, no, said Martha. Which one? The Lord's calf. You see, that's the problem of our idolatrous heart. We will give to the Lord, but we give him the leftovers. We give him the throwouts. We give him the very least instead of the very best we have. And we do that, my friends, because we think that God is okay with our little sacrifice. At least we are sacrificing. He should be happy that we gave. Because so many people don't. Listen to Psalm 40. Burnt offerings and sin offerings you have not required. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is in my heart. Some offer their sacrifices to God according to the obligations of Scripture. But David said that he delighted to do God's will. In fact, do you remember a story? You find it in 2 Samuel 24. David wanted to buy uh, this land on which to build the temple. And he offered to give some money, but the owner of the land, uh, Aruna, wanted to actually give the land to David. And David refused that, and he says, no. He insisted, I will, not burn, uh, I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God, which has cost me nothing. I asked you this morning, before God, do you give to God that which costs you nothing? Have you failed to understand how his love so demonstrated in Christ demands your soul, your life, your all? True love demands costly sacrifice. Are you too blind to see God's love bleeding at the cross? Is your heart so hardened and your idols so precious that you will not give your life and your all to him as a gift of gratitude? Will you give him the least when he has given you the best? Come. Come to the cross. 
There at the cross, see a love that is so divine, that's so amazing. A love that, that died that you might be set free. Come to the cross and have your love for God, your devotion to God restored. That you Come to the cross where you can see the infinite value of your soul and what God was willing to give and what he was willing to do to restore you. Come with a broken spirit. For the scripture says the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, what a heavy sermon this is today. This last Sunday in November, just a few more weeks to 2021. As we're coming into the Christmas season, where your love will be again displayed before us as we think about and as we hear about the love of God that gave your only begotten Son, who came into this world not with a silver spoon, not in a, in a gilded palace, but in a dirty manger he was laid. Where that man, or that little baby grew up to be a man who would have to say, the foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He gave everything up. All his comfort, all his majesty, all his, his glory wrapped up in human flesh so that he could die on the cross. And there he was twisted and bloated and gory for the sins that I have committed and that we have committed. And there he died a wretched criminal's death hated and despised by all, spat upon, mocked out. There he was naked in a shame, wearing the crown of thorns, nails in his hands and feet. Forgive us, O Lord, for ever being so complacent or so used to this great salvation that we forget the great debt alive in our hearts this day and throughout this month, that we would seek after you with all our hearts, with all our being. Lord, that, that we would see your glory, that we would see your love in new and fresh ways. Oh, Lord, we, we beg this of you. In Jesus' name, amen.